On May the 27th, 1838, a Russian steamer called Nicholas I left St. Petersburg on its regular route to Lübeck. It had a good many passengers on board who were well known in the society of Moscow and Petersburg, such as Prince Vyazimsky, a well-known essayist and poet, the wife of the celebrated diplomat and poet Tutchev, and a number of other members of well-known families, Tolstoy's, Golitsyn's, and so on. It also had on board someone not known at that time, but destined to be a good deal more celebrated than these persons, Ivan Turgenev, the writer, then aged a little, then a little over 19, a student of philosophy who had completed his studies both in Moscow and in Petersburg, and had managed to persuade his mother to let him continue his studies in Berlin, which at that time was the most celebrated of all centers of philosophy in Europe. His mother was a difficult, very tiresome and tyrannical woman who alternately spoilt and tortured her son, and he had some difficulty in persuading her, but in the end she yielded. He was her favorite son, she didn't wish him to go abroad, but finally, in the midst of tears and after a special service in the cathedral for voyagers by sea, she took him to the boat, left him in floods of tears and ended in a hysterical fit, which often happened to her. So far as we can tell, her son left cheerfully enough, played cards on board, and enjoyed his journey, his voyage, at any rate to begin with, a very great deal. When the ship was a few days out, it caught fire and was burnt to cinder. Very few persons lost their lives, most of the passengers were rescued as the fire happened about one mile from the North German shore at Travemünde, and almost everyone was rescued. How Turgenev behaved on board isn't clear, but that something had attracted the unfavorable attention of other passengers cannot, I think, be doubted. The first piece of evidence we have about this is a very typical letter which Madame Turgenev wrote to her son some months after he'd arrived in Germany in which she said to him that, I cannot understand your behavior, she said. Why were only your lamentations noticed on the boat? Everyone is here is talking about it. A great many people talk about it. It really isn't very agreeable to me. They all talk about Sir Monsieur Turgenev, who lamented so constantly, who kept on complaining about dying so young. There's a Madame Tolstoy there, and a Madame Golitsyn there, and many, many others, ladies, mothers of families. Why are all the stories exclusively about you? That you are a gros monsieur is perhaps not your fault, but you behave with such cowardice that other people could have noticed it, in spite of all that panic. That has left a stain on you, if not a stain of dishonor, certainly one of ridicule. We don't know what actually happened, but it's quite clear that Turgenev must have behaved in a rather peculiar manner. Madame Panayeva, the wife of an old friend of Turgenev's, a literary woman herself, and the wife of a well-known Russian literateur, it's true that she's malicious and not fond of Turgenev and fond of gossip, but still, I suppose her diaries can't be regarded as altogether unreliable, told the story with great glee. She told the story of how she went to a concert uh, with an old friend of hers in the country and was pointing out various celebrities to him, among them, Turgenev, and when he suddenly said, but this is the very man who, when on board the Nicholas I, behaved so abominably, pushed women aside, jostled everyone, tried to push to the front, tried to get into the lifeboats in front of all the women and children, and kept on crying in a uh, pitiful voice, 
how terrible it is to die so young. The same story was also told by Prince Vazimsky, who was certainly on board, in a letter to a well-known uh, Petersburg beauty called Madame Smirnova, who was a great friend of Pushkin and Gogol and the Emperor Nicholas I, who also recorded in her memoirs. And a number of other persons seem to have recorded this fact. There's no doubt that in the salons of St. Petersburg at that time, and those of Moscow as well, I dare say, the story was circulating that Portogenev lost his head completely and tried to uh, get off the ship long before, in front of the women and children, in particular that he'd seized the sailor by the arm and offered him 10,000 rubles, saying that he was the only son of a rich mother who would know how to reward him. Well, this is the kind of story which it's very difficult for people to live down, and we could well imagine that Turgenev must have been troubled by it. At first, we, he didn't seem to take much notice of it. There's nothing about it in his letters or anywhere else. First reference to it that we come across is in some years after the incident, in 1855, when he was staying on his country estate at Spaskoe with some literary friends, and they decided to write a little play for the benefit of the neighbours. And in one of the scenes of the little play, in which Turgenev acted himself, a fire breaks out. And Turgenev himself rushed onto the scene, saying, Save me, save me. I'm the only son of my mother. Well, this by this time was a very well-known line, evidently, because the whole audience burst out laughing. The rest of the play was apparently very poor and dull, and nobody enjoyed it at all. But this was a line that brought the house down. Well, it's not untypical of Turgenev to try and so to speak, destroy the force of this famous sentence, which must have wounded him very considerably, constantly repeated by his friends and enemies, by turning it against himself in a typically ironical manner, which is very characteristic of Turgenev. All his life, he turned the points of other people's swords away by pretending not to mind, or by drowning it in some kind of soft irony of his own, and turning it above all into literature, into art. Again, we don't hear about the episode for about 12 years, after which a man called Prince Peter Dolgorukov, rather a bad hat, he was a political exile who suffered for his convictions, but also at the same time the man who almost certainly wrote the famous anonymous letter to Pushkin, which caused Pushkin's duel and death. And it's difficult to think that he didn't know that, was going to, that was going to happen. From all we know about him, he really was a, a, a complicated and sophisticated scoundrel who enjoyed placing both his friends and his enemies in difficult situations. Well, Dolgorukov, who made a certain amount of money by publishing libelous genealogies of the Russian aristocracy, and I dare say by blackmail as well, published some interesting memoirs in the course of which he tells this famous story about Turgenev's cowardice when he was 19. Even then Turgenev might have let it go by, but some of you are in Russia, in reviewing this book of memoirs, quoted this story rather maliciously, ostensibly in order to show what a liar Dolgorukov was. But once it began to circulate in Russia, in a printed version, he felt he had to do something, and so he wrote a letter to the newspaper saying that um, he hadn't done it. it he says, I, I, what he said was that he didn't wish to pretend that he wasn't um, perturbed by this prospect of death at the age of 19, but he didn't actually speak the famous sentence in question. That was, had been invented on the next day by a witty prince, he doesn't tell us who. Anyway, not by Dolgorukov himself, and anyway, it wasn't true. After that, the thing dies down again. Voguet, who, of all the foreign observers at the time, knew most about Russian literature, tells us that his friends often tried to persuade Turgenev to write down this particular episode, to describe what really happened. 
and Turgenev never wanted to do that. From, so Bogue says, some superstitious fear of death, or superstitious reluctance to describe an episode in which he came so near death. Well, that's not a very plausible explanation. I don't know that there's much evidence that Turgenev had a particular terror of death, greater than that of other people. Had a terror of disease, certainly. That's a different matter. At any rate, what did happen was, in the very last year of his life, in 1883, when he was very ill in Bougival, where he lived with his friend, the celebrated contralto singer, Madame Pauline Viardo, he decided to write the story down. He dictated it in French to Madame Viardo. He was suffering from cancer of the spine and was in appalling agony most of the time. During the lucid intervals, he dictated the story, which he called A Fire at Sea, an incendie en mer, which he dictated it in French about three months before he died. A Russian writer called Madame Lukanina, who is not otherwise known, translated it into Russian. He read through the Russian translation, complained there were a few gallicisms in it, but on the whole he thought it would do, and it was published very shortly after his death in September 83, both in the collected Russian edition of his works and in the French edition. At last, the story was told, exorcised, so to speak. The thing I think which one feels most of all about it is that here was something which festered inside him all his life, which came back to haunt him at intervals, which malicious people used to taunt him with. All his life, Turgenev was suspected by his friends of having a weak character, of being a coward, of not daring to come to either side, of sitting on the fence, above all, of showing a certain lack of spirit in crises, whether personal or moral or political or whatever kind. He never exactly defended himself against these charges, except rather half-heartedly. But that he minded them very strongly is very clear from everything we know about him, and particularly his correspondence. His whole life was spent in trying to explain that someone like him, who has a realistic grasp of the truth, cannot take sides with a kind of fanaticism and wholeheartedness with which people with a narrower and more intense vision could, and that he was simply being punished for a just view of the facts, for being moderate, for having a certain amount of insight and human sympathy. And this is no exception. This story which people used to laugh at him, to mock him, to expose him in a disagreeable light, Dostoevsky, his sworn enemy, had of course not missed it and used it in his novel The Possessed in the course of the very hostile sketch of Turgenev, which appears in that novel under the mask of the writer Karmazinov. He finally decided to eliminate the source of pain, but evidently couldn't bring himself to do it until he was actually on his deathbed. And then he finally did what he always did, with things that troubled him all his life, he turned it into art. In the story which I'm about to read to you, you will find that the episode with the offer of the money to the sailor, and the episode with which in general involves a certain amount of cravenness and weakness in the part of Turgenev, isn't altogether slurred over. He does tell it. But it's written about so lightly, so ironically. He represents himself as not exactly a hero, but not a coward either, uh, as simply being a rather romantic, rather confused, amiable, charming young man. And the episode with the money is so tucked away in a mass of other amusing detail with which he surrounds it. And the whole story is written so lightly and so pleasantly that one is made to feel that really nothing can be made of this. He somehow managed to dissolve the whole thing into his typical, elegant, ironical art. And that was his greatest weapon 
against his persecutors. It's, I think, interesting to observe what he does do with this kind of difficult form in his flesh. But in any case, the story is worth listening to or reading, because I think, quite apart from its psychological interest in the author's life, it is a masterpiece in its own right. The translation, which I'm about to read to you, um, is from the French original text, published in Paris in 1883. It happened in May 1838. With a great many others, I was a passenger on board the steamer Nicholas I of the regular Petersburg-Lübeck service. Since at that time, railways were still in their infancy, everyone traveled by sea. For the same reason, many travelers took their own carriages with them to continue their journey in Germany, France, and so on. We had, I remember, no fewer than 28 carriages on our ship. There were about 280 passengers on board, including some 20 children. I was then very young, and being a good sailor, was able to enjoy all these new impressions. There were several ladies on board, remarkably beautiful or pretty, the majority no longer alive, alas. This was the first time that I was allowed by my mother to travel alone, and I had to promise her to behave sensibly, and above all, not to touch cards. And it was precisely this last promise that was the first to be broken. One evening, there was a large gathering in the main saloon, and there happened to be present several well-known gamblers from St. Petersburg. They made up a bank, the game was a kind of lorsque every evening, and the ringing of gold pieces, which in those days were more frequently seen than now, produced a deafening din. One of these gentlemen, observing that I kept apart, and not knowing the reason for it, suddenly invited me to join his game. When I, with all the naivety of my 18 years, told him why I preferred to abstain, he burst out laughing, and turning to his friends, exclaimed that he'd found a real treasure, a young man who never touched cards, and was consequently destined to have the most fabulous, most unheard of luck, real beginner's luck. I don't know how it happened, but ten minutes later, I was at the card table, my hands full of cards, firmly installed, and playing, playing like mad. I must admit that the ancient proverb turned out to be true enough. Money flowed towards me in streams. Two little heaps of gold rose higher and higher on either side of my trembling, sweaty hands. The gambler who'd inveigled me into the game kept working me up and ceaselessly egged me on. I really did believe that my fortune was made. Suddenly, the door of the saloon was flung wide open, and a lady rushed in, crying in a desperate, strangled voice, The ship is on fire, and fell in a dead faint on the sofa. This produced the most violent commotion. Everybody leapt from their seats. Gold, silver, banknotes rolled and scattered in every direction, and we all hurled ourselves through the doors. How we had failed before this, to notice the smoke, which by now is pouring in on us, on us from all sides, I simply can't conceive. The stairs were full of it. A reddish glow, as of burning coal, flared up here and there, and in an instant, everybody was on deck. Two vast, swirling pillars of smoke rose on either side of the funnel and along the masts, and a most terrible uproar began, which from then on never ceased. The chaos was unbelievable. One felt that each one of these human beings was in the violent grip of the most desperate instinct of self-preservation, among them not least myself. I remember that I grasped the sailor by the arm and promised him 10,000 rubles in my mother's name if he could manage to save me. The sailor naturally couldn't take these words seriously and pried himself loose from me. Nor indeed did I myself insist, realizing that what I was saying made little sense. 
But then what I saw around me didn't make any better sense. Nothing, it has been truly observed, can equal the tragedy of a shipwreck, save only its comedy. For example, a rich country squire, beside himself with terror, was crawling on his hands and knees along the floor, prostrating himself from time to time in an absolute frenzy. But when the water, which was being poured in vast quantities into the coal holes, for a moment checked the fury of the flames, he rose to his full height and shouted in a voice of thunder, Men of little faith, do you really think that our god, the god of Russia, would abandon us? At this very moment, the flames suddenly leapt higher, and the unfortunate man of much faith again went down at all fours and began to kiss the floorboards once more. A general with a fixed haggard stare kept bellowing. We must send a courier to the emperor. When there was a mutiny of the military settlements, a courier was sent. I was there myself. I was there. And this did save, at any rate, some of us. Another gentleman, who had an umbrella in his hands, suddenly began to stab ferociously at a poor little portrait in oils, tied to an easel, that stood near him among the luggage. With the tip of his umbrella, he pierced five little holes through its eyes, nose, mouth and ears, and he accompanied this act of destruction with cries of, what is the use of all this now? And the picture didn't even belong to him. A plump man, bathed in tears, who looked like a German brewer, kept on moaning, Captain, Captain, and when the captain finally lost patience, seized him by the scruff of the neck and shouted at, him, shouted at him, Well, I am the captain. What do you want? The fat man looked at him in a dazed way and again began moaning, Captain. And yet it was actually this captain who saved all our lives. First, because at the very last moment, when it was still possible to get to the machines, he altered our course. If our ship had continued on straight to Lübeck, instead of turning sharply toward the shore, She'd have been burnt out before she reached harbour. Secondly, because he ordered the sailors to draw their decks and show no mercy to anyone who tried to touch one of the two remaining lifeboats. The remainder had been upset owing to the experience of passengers who had been self-styled to lure them into the sea. The sailors, for the most part Danes, with their cold, energetic faces, the reflected light of flames giving an almost blood-stained glint to the blades of their knives, inspired instinctive terror. Unflattering though this, this may be to my own sex, but on this occasion the women showed a good deal more spirit than most of the men. Pale, white-faced, the night found them in their beds, and still of clothes, there's blankets thrown over them. And unbeliever, as by then I already was, they seemed to me like angels come down from heaven to shame us and give us more courage. However, there are men too who show daring. I remember one particularly, Monsieur D., our former Russian ambassador in Copenhagen. He had taken off his shoes, tie and coat, which he tied by the sleeves round his chest, and sitting on a thick taut cable and swinging his legs, he quietly smoked his cigar and surveyed us each in turn with an expression of mocking pity. As for me, I found a refuge on an outside stair and sat down on one of the lower steps. I gazed with stupefaction on the ruddy foam boiling below, the spray of which I felt on my face, and I kept saying to myself, so this is where I must die at the age of 18, for I had firmly resolved to be drowned rather than fried. The flame rose above me in an arch, and I quite clearly distinguished its howl from the howling of the waves. Near me, on the same steps, sat a little old woman, probably a cook who belonged to one of the families travelling to Europe. Her head hidden in her hands, she seemed to be whispering prayers, 
Suddenly, she threw a quick glance at me, and whether because she imagined that she saw some fatal resolution on my face, or for some other reason, anyway, she seized my arm, and in an imploring tone said to me with great earnestness, No, Barin, nobody may do as he will with his life. You, no more than anybody else. We must accept what providence sends us. Otherwise, it would mean taking your own life, and you'd pay for that in the next world. I hadn't felt the least inclination to suicide, but now, out of some kind of bravado quite inexplicable in my position, I once or twice pretended to be about to carry out the intention she attributed to me, and each time the poor old woman would rush towards me to prevent what in her eyes would have been a crime. In the end, in the end I felt a sort of shame and stopped. And really, why this comedy in the presence of death, which at that moment genuinely seemed to me imminent and inevitable? However, there was no time either to meditate about the strangeness of these feelings or to admire the absence of egoism. Today, it is called altruism of the poor old woman. For at this one moment, the roaring of the flames above our heads redoubled in fury, when suddenly a voice of bronze, as it turned out, this was to be the voice of our rescuer, sounded above us. What are you doing down there, you poor wretches? You will never escape. Follow me. And at once, knowing neither who was calling, nor where we had to go, the old woman and I jumped up as if propelled by a spring and threw ourselves through the smoke behind a sailor in a blue jacket who was climbing up a rope ladder. Not knowing why, I too climbed the ladder behind him. I think that if at this moment he'd flung himself into the water or had done something else, however extraordinary, I should have followed him blindly. Having hoisted my himself up two or three rungs, the sailor jumped heavily down onto the roof of one of the carriages the lower part of which was already in flames. I jumped after him and heard the old woman jump behind me. Then, from the first carriage, the sailor jumped onto the second carriage, then onto a third, with me always behind him. In this way, we presently reached the bow of the ship. Nearly all the passengers were gathered there. The sailors, under the eye of the captain, were lowering one of our two lifeboats into the sea, fortunately the largest. Across the other side of the ship, I saw the steep line of cliffs that stretched along the shore towards Lübeck, lit up vividly by the fire. It was well over a mile to the foot of the cliff. I couldn't swim. The shoal on which we were grounded, without even noticing it, was probably shallow enough, but the waves were very high. Nevertheless, as soon as I saw the rocks, I was overwhelmed by the feeling that I was saved. To the astonishment of my companions, I jumped into the air several times and cried, Hip, hip, hooray! I had no wish to go towards the place where the crowd was swarming thickest in order to reach the ladder which led to the big boat. There were too many women, old men and children there. Besides, ever since I had seen the rocks, I was no longer in a hurry. I was certain that I was saved. I noticed with surprise that almost none of the children showed any fear. Several of them even fell asleep in their mother's arms. Not a single child perished. I noticed among a group of passengers a tall general, his clothes streaming with water. He was quite motionless, leaning on a bench which he had just pulled out of the wall and stood upright. I learnt that in the first moment of terror he had brutally pushed aside a woman who wanted to get in front of him in order to jump into one of the lifeboats that later capsized. One of the stewards threw him back onto the ship. The old soldier, ashamed of his moment of cowardice, swore he'd be the last to leave the ship after the captain. Stately, pale, bleeding from a wound in, in the forehead, he stared with a crushed resigned look upon his face, as if asking for forgiveness. In the meantime, I made my way toward the port, port side of the ship. 
and saw our little lifeboat dancing on the waves like a toy. Two sailors were making signs from it, inviting the passengers to drop. But this was perilous and by no means easy. The Nicholas I was a high-decked steamer, and one had to drop with extreme skill not to upset the lifeboat. Finally, I decided to do it. I began by placing myself on the anchor train, which was stretched alongside the ship. I was just about to leap when a soft, heavy mass fell on me. A woman clutched me around the neck and hung like a dead weight on me. I must admit, my first impulse was to force the hand off my neck and get rid of the mass by flinging it over my head. Most fortunately, I didn't yield to the impulse. The initial shock nearly threw us both into the water, but luckily, just in front of me, suspended from I don't know where, a piece of rope was waving in the air. I seized it with one hand so violently that it bled. Then, glancing down, I saw that my burden and I were just over the lifeboat. And, praise be to God, I slid down. The boat cracked in all its seams. Hooray, cried the sailors. I laid down my companion, who had in the meanwhile fainted on the floor of the boat, and at once turned to look at the ship. I saw a multitude of heads, especially female ones, feverishly pressing alongside. Jump, I cried, stretching out my arms. At this moment, the success of my bold attempt and my conviction that the flames couldn't reach me filled me with unbelievable strength and courage. And I caught the only three women who ventured to jump into my boat as easily as apples tossed in an orchard. All these ladies, I may add, were always, at, always uttered a piercing scream before they jumped and invariably fainted on arrival. One fellow, probably from sheer panic, nearly killed one of these unfortunate women by throwing a heavy travelling chest, which broke to pieces as it fell into our boat, revealing the valuable dressing case. Without asking myself whether I had the right to dispose of it, I immediately presented it to two sailors, who, just as unhesitatingly, accepted it. We at once started to row with all our might towards the shore, followed by cries of, Come back quickly! Send us back the boat! When the water was no more than about three feet deep, we therefore had to climb out. Fine, cold drizzle had set in, more than an hour before. It, hadn't, it had not the slightest effect on the fire, but us it drenched to the bone. Finally, we reached the happy shore, the happy shore which turned out to be nothing but a gigantic pool of liquid, sticky mud into which we sank up to the knees. Our boat left rapidly, and like the bigger lifeboat, began to shuttle to and fro from ship to shore. Only a few passengers perished, eight in all. One fell into a coal hole, another was drowned because he insisted on taking all his money with him. This last, whose name I hardly knew, played chess with me during most of the day with such fanaticism that Prince W who had been watching our game, couldn't help explaining you look as if you were playing for your lives. As for the baggage, it was nearly all lost, including the carriages. Among the ladies rescued from the shipwreck, there was a Madame T. Very pretty and charming, but encumbered by her four little girls and their nurses. Consequently, she was left deserted on the shore barefoot. Her shoulders scarcely covered. I felt called upon to behave gallantly. This cost me my coat, which until then I'd managed to preserve, my cravat, and even my boots. Furthermore, the peasant with a cart drawn by a couple of horses whom I had gone to find on top of the cliff and duly sent on to meet the ladies didn't think it necessary to wait for me and drove off to Lübeck with all my companions. So, th so that I found myself alone, half naked, soaked to the skin in sight of the sea where our ship was slowly burning itself out. I say burning itself out deliberately because I should never have believed such a huge contraption could be destroyed so fast. It was now no more than a large patch of flame, 
motionless on the surface of the sea, furrowed with the black silhouettes of funnels and masts, white seagulls, in their heavy, impassive flight, circled about it. And soon after, a vast clump of ash, strewn with tiny sparks, falling in large curves upon the, by now, more tranquil waves. And is this all, I thought? Is this our whole life, then? Only a handful of ashes, scattered by the wind, Fortunately for the philosopher, whose teeth had begun to chatter violently, another carter picked me up. For this, the good man made me pay two ducats. But he did wrap me in his thick cloak, and sang for my benefit two or three Mecklenburg songs, which I thought quite pretty. I reached Lübeck at dawn. Here I met my fellow victims, and we went on to Hamburg together. Now we found 20,000 silver rubles, which the Emperor Nicholas, who at that very moment happened to be passing through Berlin, had sent us by one of his equerries. The gentlemen unanimously agreed to offer this money to the ladies. It was all the easier for us to do this, since in those days any Russian traveller in Germany enjoyed unlimited credit. Now this is no longer so. The sailor, to whom I offered a, f a fantastic sum of money in my mother's name for saving me, appeared to demand the fulfilment of my promise. But I wasn't, as I wasn't quite sure whether he was the man, and since, moreover, he'd done absolutely nothing to rescue me, I offered him one thaler, which he was only too glad to accept. As for the poor old cook, who had been so concerned to save my soul, I never saw her again. But I feel quite happy about her. Whether she was roasted or drowned, she had a place reserved for her in paradise. <laughs>